literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karin Kukkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Sarah Brutrasmundi, who is LCE researcher and also Associate Professor of Cognitive Ethnography at the University of Southern Denmark. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so you're, you're an Associate Professor of Cognitive Ethnography, um, which means that you're someone who studies in principle everything concerning <laughs> <laughs> human beings and, and how they live together. Um, and, and out of all the human activities that, that one could study, you chose uh, literature and reading. Um, what does make literature and reading special to you? Yeah, I think there's a, um, there's a story to why I came into reading and literature. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's a privilege to be able to study everything that human beings are doing and, and how they make sense. And, um, and I'm very inspired also by social anthropology and especially uh, Tim Ingold, who, um, who said, uh, I think he defined anthropology as something like uh, philosophy with people in it. And I think it's it's a really nice uh, not ideas but people <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and that whole uh, empirical side to study what people are actually doing together um, and I've been moving around different uh, domains and studied uh, many many aspects of of how human makes sense and and live their lives. Um, And for a long time, I thought coming also from embodied cognition, uh, I thought that embodied cognition was really good at explaining how people uh, made sense in these domains where there were lots of interaction, lots of activity and significant movement. And perhaps less good at or less interested in, in these fields where higher cognition was present. And I was thinking it, it's interesting since narrative play such a huge role in, in our lives and, and has done for so long time that little was said empirically uh, about how people read, for instance. Mm. So coming from different domains and being an, a cognitive ethnographer, I was interested in studying exactly what are people actually doing. I mean, how are they making sense as, as they engage with literature? And especially uh, in relation to these aspects that were less clear empirically, mm -hmm. like imagination and mind-wandering and, and these feelings that you also said in the introduction. What are people actually feeling and doing? And, um, and there are lots of theories about that, but less uh, empirical stuff to deal with. And I thought as an ethnographer, you must be able to dig a little bit around that and, and learn from how people are doing uh, reading, for instance. So, mm. yeah. So to come back to the not ideas, but people, mm. um, of course, we have an ideal reader, I guess, uh, yeah. in our minds that there is this, this cultural model yeah. that in order to be a good reader, you're engrossed in the book, you're sitting still, you're not lifting your gaze uh, from the page. Mm -hmm. um, however, I guess once you replace <laughs> the ideal reader with the people or the, the people who are actually reading yeah. a text, a lot of that changes, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, the ideal reader is an ideal, uh, but I also think it's a wrong ideal of a reader that we have, uh, and I think that's due to um, simply lack of evidence of what's going on as people read. So there are these um, 
ideas of the ideal reader as you present here, that it's about a silent activity, it's a mental activity of decoding uh, symbolic information in a text. It sounds very abstract. Yeah, <laughs> it does. And, and the real empirical reader that we observe is far from, from that picture. Uh, and I think it's... So what do they do? Yeah, they do lots of things. Uh, so first of all, it's also interesting uh, to... I mean, does it even make sense to talk about an ideal reader? Uh, and what is it in that case? Mm. Um, for me, I'm interested in those aspects that has to do with quality reading, how we can take control and how we can manage our reading activities. And then we looked at what are people actually doing? Who are Who are those who feel... Uh, joy when they read who are those readers that are more imaginative or more creative or more critical as they engage with literature. And and it has to do with the degree of control of the strategies you imply. So there might be the same mechanisms involved in reading, but the tricks and the strategies you use are very different. Uh, so some of the readers were very good at uh, controlling the pace, for instance, um, What we observed in some of the video data we have is that they would take breaks during reading. So breaks are something that I'm super interested in because I think there's so much stuff that goes on there that is still underexplored empirically. Mm. Uh, and they were able to more freely use different kinds of strategies depending on what they wanted from the text. So the ideal reader is one that can control what he or she wants to do. Uh, whereas we see that others are extremely constrained by social cultural expectations of what they're supposed to do with the text. Uh, and they would conform to a very fixated reading strategy, for instance, taking all the notes, trying to understand every word on the page, be less um, radical and bold um, mm. in their reading, for instance. So I think that one thing we could see uh, was that It was messy. It wasn't silent at all. It was extremely embodied. But of course, the embodiment is very different from other kinds of activities. Mm -hmm. So these small scale uh, differences that you can observe uh, are significant or crucial uh, and needs to be unpacked empirically, I think. And then what we also saw was that the ideal reader doesn't really make sense because you can't maintain one specific reading Uh, mode or trajectory. I mean, people who switch in and out of different modes, it's extremely exhausting and and takes a lot of effort to be imaginative throughout mm -hmm. such a long reading, for instance. So you won't uh, be able to engage in that kind of reading for for a long time. So people were adapting very much towards their um, level of motivation and and emotions and stuff like that. So There were variations that were crucial, uh, and it's not like you are just one kind of reader. And then, of course, what we also observed was that different readers read differently, too. So depending on who you are, where you come from, and the personality, and also, of course... So there is a personality involved in, yeah, in reading? Yeah, I think uh, there are layers involved mm. that uh, it very often the, the conversation is confused or mistaken by by the level of argumentation, I think. So we are talking about reading in some sense as a very uh, general uh, skill mm -hmm. where specific mechanisms... You learn in school. Exactly, yeah. And in some sense, it's extremely predictable and you can talk about reading as a, as a general competence 
But then again, there's a different layer uh, where you can say that people are also very different and neuroscience also back up that uh, that claim that different areas are involved and, and people are, are imaginative and some are less imaginative uh, when they read. Some are very task-oriented and others are better at taking in information uh, in other ways. So you have a personality that also mm. impact. And it's not like there's one personality that is good and one that mm. is bad, but exactly how do you exploit in the best particular way to achieve what you want, uh, yeah. the reading uh, activity. And and that has to do with how you control and the freedom you have in the reading situation, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about strategy, you were talking about control. Mm -hmm. um, where does the embodiment come in there? Because that's yeah. also something that you stressed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. about the reading process, that yeah. it's actually something that involves more than just the eyes. Yeah, exactly. And I think, so a strategy for me is a whole body that is embodiment. So you can see different strategies. In, can in, you explain or maybe yeah. give an example what yeah. that looks like? Uh, so for instance, you can see that uh, we had a case where, where people were reading the same text and uh, some people were extremely frustrated when problems occurred. And there were different ways to engage with that kind of problems that emerged in the reading. So some people would just try to escape that and pace would, would change so they would read faster and others would slow down, for instance. And would you could see uh, in the facial expressions that they were kind of reflecting and engaging in this kind of critical thinking. Mm. And you can also see in terms of the imagination, for instance, that some people would just get through the text and every time there was something that caught their attention, they would close down that path that they could go on and then go back to what they think uh, they thought they were supposed to do, whereas others would be much more, um, they would fixate, for instance, trying to close down uh, information from mm -hmm. the environment, trying to reduce uh, the sensitivity to a very specific uh, process that was going on. How do you do that? Well, that's, the th I don't know, <laughs> but we can see that people are, when we talk to them, mm. uh, they would say that they would try to hold their attention. They would try to fixate and they would try mm. not to take in information from the environment, something that embodied cognition and, and all research coming from that field have tried to for a long time is to show exactly how we draw on information in the environment and how we, we adapt to, to the environment. Mm. And of course, they still do that, but in a significantly different way by trying to fixate their body, trying to not get information in mm -hmm. and control that flow of information uh, in different ways. So fixation is something that, for instance, in school has been interpreted, I think, that's my uh, hypothesis, as inability to concentrate or focus or move forward or keep flow and fluency mm -hmm. and all these kind of things skills that we want them to uh, be good part at. of the ideal reader. Exactly, yeah. And what we could see then is that sometimes when these self-initiated changes in their uh, reading behavior occurred, it had to do with some sort of critical, reflective, imaginative stuff, which we still do not know exactly what is, but it seemed to be correlating with joy and more immersive kind of reading. So when you talk about the ideal reader, I think also that something that many people struggle with today is exactly getting down uh, in or getting calm and getting into a reading pace that is much slower, where you can actually think, where you can be creative mm. and imaginative. 
So for me, uh, one ideal, in, at least in, in my research, is to encourage people to take control over the reading processes in the sense that they can allow themselves to explore uh, other aspects of reading that they have been trained to, so to speak. Yeah. So going beyond the skill and the functional into the more um, aesthetic and explorative, I guess. Instance. Becoming a fully rounded reader, that's what yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly the key, that there are many ways in which mm. you can read, and it's about knowing how you can exploit uh, the whole situation best as possible in terms of what you want. Mm. Uh, and some things you should encourage people to want, perhaps, <laughs> uh, because these skills are critical. Uh, yeah. And we are becoming perhaps less good at uh, keeping concentration, uh, concentration span and uh, critical thinking and basically all the stuff that we want societies to be built on. So, so yeah. there are new challenges for... Absolutely. Well, I guess yeah. both the study and the, the teaching yeah. of, Definitely. of reading. Yeah. I think they go together. So all the models of reading that we have, of course, impact education mm. uh, and, and cultural understanding of what reading is and how it should be trained and what we gain from it um, yeah i mean you've been talking about reading in pretty general terms now yeah. but i do i read you um <laughs> right that this means to a significant extent also reading literature and yeah. not just reading informational text for the purpose of being mm -hmm. able to give a little summary of what you've read absolutely i think um so i'm not a literary scholar and i know a little about literature i think imagination and stories are fascinating uh so for me it's it's easy to say that genre is less important in that sense i think it's extremely important in, in other senses but in that sense uh, imagination is always working uh mm -hmm. and and it does so in all kinds of texts and of course even in academic text being imaginative might be very valuable, where it might be very easy, or not very easy, but it might be easier for people to engage in these imaginative worlds uh, when they read fiction. And and I think it's a skill that applies across genres and should be trained because it has to do with meaning-making more generally. Mm. Yeah. So just to push that point a little, mm -hmm. because I feel like it... Um, <laughs> Would that mean that actually they should read lots and lots of literature in school because it's easier to engage exactly in these imaginative yeah. um, dimensions of reading, which will then also come in very handy mm. with the more, yeah, with non-fiction texts? I would be inclined to say no, <laughs> because I don't think it's about the quantity. Mm. Uh, and, and I think uh, the downside of just reading and reading and reading is that uh, you take away the joy of reading and it becomes this mechanic skill and it becomes about the quantity. I think it's great if you love to read that you could read all the stuff you want. I think to engage in these processes... It's not necessarily about just reading a lot. It's it's about to give the process quality. Mm. And I think we have so little knowledge about what goes on as people read because we are always talking to people afterwards, uh, asking them about their experiences. And um, what they remember. Exactly, yeah, and what they think they did. Uh, and of course what you do is you make an analysis and you reduce processes to uh, fixed points and, and results so people would easily talk about what they remember uh, or reduce uh, sensitivity to a kind of emotion they had or something like that. And it's very often what we can see 
very far away from what actually went on. And uh, the points in the reading process they emphasize are obvious, I mean, and less interesting in terms of, I mean, what we can see uh, throughout the whole reading trajectory. So I think it's more about being good at timing and in terms of taking a teacher's perspective to be in the process when people read Mm. and be present there. I think that's crucial. And of course, the more you read, you will train that skill. But I think there is um, a misunderstood focus on just reading. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's not what yeah. I meant. No, no. Um, yeah. But but really, that there is something in, in reading literature that sort of carries you absolutely. Yeah. Um, towards this exactly imaginative use, yeah. uh, having a certain yeah a sort of space to maneuver in in a textual yeah. world that I guess you wouldn't exactly you wouldn't have with. Um, a non-fiction text. I think, well, can I just say hmm. a little bit about that? Because I think that's super interesting and I think that's what literature can do. It gives you a time out from many <laughs> of the social interactions that, uh, so when you engage with people and you think together with people or interact together with people, you can't, because there's another people involved, you can't control the pace and you can't control <laughs> what goes on in the same way as you can engage with that mm. material. And you can't, you, I mean, reading is fascinating because you can stop and you can pause and you can insert these breaks and you can go back and you can go forward. I mean, there's this time travel dimension in reading where you can over-exaggerate things. You can play with things in, in, in a non-harmful way and explore things in a non-harmful way that are completely different from other kinds of interactions. And it gives you that kind of pause control mm-hmm. that you don't have and everything goes so fast in real life and then it's it. And and I think that's something that's um, fascinating about literature. And that's, you know, again, across genres, you can do that in all kinds of text. Hard problems that you deal with in academia or a universe you find interesting and fascinating in fiction. So I think that's really a unique mm. moment that we can create Something else that I, I read in um, your articles is the matter not just of push the pause button, um, but also the question of aesthetics. Mm. So, which links to the aesthetic, mm. which of course, I mean, literature has a certain ambition to, to yeah. give you an aesthetic mm. experience. But you're talking about that in, in a very particular sense, don't you? Yeah, I think I am. So, it's an overall. Uh, human sensibility, so to speak, and it has to do with previous ways of seeing and tasting and touching and smelling and and so on and so forth. And I think what uh, Stephen Cowley and I, we were trying to to take that concept into reading, trying to show exactly how how aesthesis has to do with controlling, I mean, how it is a a kind of uh, saccading and moving and, and how it has to do with these aspects that aren't reduced to the functional, the hedonic, so how people actually bring life into into text. And I think it's because these um, models of reading has exactly taken away the reader, basically, from the reading. So it has been this mechanical skill of just uh, deducing information and this, again, mechanical skill that everyone could be trained. And we want to bring back sensibility and how human beings of flesh and blood actually uh, has a history and how that history matters for the interpretation or the engagement with with text. 
So bringing that again into a theory of reading <laughs> complicates things. <laughs> I imagine it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it also gives it, I mean, that kind of, a, people reads for many purposes also. Mm. And, and how you can, I mean, think of how you read or how your reading experiences are very different in, when you read in different languages, for instance. So there's this layer of sensibility that is crucial for why we read at all, I think. It's not just to, I mean, to get information. And it has been reduced, might have been touched uh, in different theories, uh, also within literature, I think. But empirically, it's almost underexplored, I would say. It's, it's difficult, of course, to to touch about that. But basically, you should look at what people are doing, and then it's mm. like it's sitting right there, <laughs> and it's so obvious and significant and important to people. And they have really good um, explanations, and all of them emphasize that reading is just so much more than getting information. And that's what they hate. That's reading for information only. And and they are also frustrated when they can't really use their own experience in the mm. reading processes. So there's something there that would, if we understand that better, would also give us better students, better readers in general, I think. And I guess it would also give us a, yeah, a, a better picture of what it actually means to, to read. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and how that, I mean, you were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, the, the more long-term perspective on this. That it's a, there is something in education, but then, I mean, as a reader, you're not reading all the time. No. Um, you do have to eat and sleep uh, yeah. once in a while. Yeah. Um, I would like to hear what you think about that dimension of being a reader. That as mm. a reader, you have a sort of biography. Yeah, there is a... a a whole wall of books behind you that you've inhabited at, at some point or another? Um, I think that's, again, one of the things that haven't been studied because it's um, it hasn't been a traditional focus to study reading and readers um, in modern society from this ethnographic point of view because, I mean, what is there to observe? If people are just sitting still doing nothing, it wouldn't really be that interesting. And what we did was that we started to follow people over time, so over years, to see how they actually not just are readers, but also how they become readers over time. And, uh, of course, it has to do with things that goes on in their lives. And, I mean, as you mentioned, did they... Um, did they live in a home where there were books all over the place? Did their mom and dad read stories to them? And, I mean, how is their engagement with narratives, basically, in general? So that's, of course, very important. But it's not just the, again, the ontogenetic aspect of the, mm. that kind of person. It's just as interesting to see how the social cultural dimension also really impacts and much more stronger than I thought, actually. I thought people had much more freedom. Can you give an example for that uh, social-cultural? Yeah. There, um, there was this one girl who said, I hate to read. Uh, I loved to read before, but now I hate it and I struggle so much with it. And she was what we would call an expert reader. She could read all kinds of text, but it was such a struggle and we, we couldn't really figure why why is that. And it's because she thought that it was such a constraint to read for the purpose that she was supposed to understand every word in the text and uh, and memorize everything. And she said that every time I have an idea, I have to say, oh, it's not for now. I have to do this. And you can see that how initially there are these interests and moments that would generate what we expect to be 
creative in some sense or critical or whatever, their own personal stance that might be very useful in terms of motivation, but also understanding. Uh, and they are very good at learning to reduce that and close down these moments in doing their reading. And that's only something you can see when you actually observe their actual mm. reading as they prepare uh, the reading. So you can see how she would start and then she would say, and go back again. And then we start to ask when these moments occurred, so what happens? Well, now is not the time for me to do that. And that's, of course, exactly, you can just almost envision a teacher saying, no, that's not what you're supposed to do now. Mm. Now you have to focus and do that. So it's so strongly just subconsciously working through their embodied uh, behavior in reading that they just, you know, their attentional or their attention is simply uh, reduced from that kind of social cultural expectation, so to speak. Yeah, given such strong, such a strong factory setting of strategy mm. that they can't or they don't allow themselves to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They simply close down all the interesting stuff, so it becomes this kind of you know prison for them. That's also another mm. metaphor that some of them explain, and it's like. Well, they understand every word, so what is it exactly? But it, I think what it comes down to is it, that it's it's taking away the freedom of how they want to engage with the text. Mm. And then, of course, it gets extremely boring just to read for someone else, so to speak, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, so I just have to get through this and then move on. It's definitely not something that inspires them to think about what they're reading. Of course, that's a very simplistic... I mean, that's one person, but but I was surprised to see it and and... It actually happened quite a lot that people would learn to adapt to the norms and the rules and expectations of the system or the factory, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah. So from your research, you go and look at readers while they're reading mm -hmm. um, and then you also <laughs> interview them or you talk to them yeah. about their reading. So from, from that uh, kind of approach... How do you get to, well, how, how could we, you know, explode the prison or undo the factory setting? <laughs> so now it's just speculation because we're not there where we can say this is the problem, this is what we should do. But of course we have, we can definitely see that there is something that people, uh, the, the joy of reading kind of decreases uh, over time. So initially in school they like to read and then they enter the university, that's where we uh, meet them and then they hate to read. <laughs> So that's perfect. <laughs> and um, and then there's a challenge, of course, to see, okay, how can we bring back the joy of reading? And also it relates to getting motivated and getting the freedom back also to, to be a person that reads. One of the things that we expect is that exactly these breaks that I mentioned earlier uh, correlate with at least the possibility for engaging in these imaginative processes. So one of the empirical settings uh, we are creating right now is, is a setting where we want to play with uh, the function of breaks and try to manipulate breaks during reading and try to train people to take breaks, for instance, just to see what happens if they slow down the pace. Because in, in the reading system, uh, in Denmark at least, and I think that goes uh, for many other European countries, They're testing more and more the efficiency and uh, the pace with which uh, students read. And 
all these things they measure are completely the opposite of what we see that uh, scaffold imaginative processes. So we would start there and see, okay, we can see that breaks are crucial and something happens there. And then see, can we get a better picture of what happens in these processes? And then, of course, that's one strategy. That's one embodied strategy to simply zone out or zoom out of the process and uh, exploit those breaks and moments and dare to play with that crazy little idea that some people also mention they get. You know, it's like these um, immediate ideas that they or prompts that they think are irrelevant but actually quite interesting if you go along so in one study we we asked them when they happened these breaks so what what going what's going on now and that could be everything from a word that sound funny or beautiful or an idea they had and when you you had a conversation and dialogue about it, it became quite interesting where did it come from why did you think about that and then suddenly there was stuff there that also made them uh, memorize the text better or mm. remember the text also a long time after better. So there's something that's completely underexplored and breaks, that's a starting point. And then let's see what, <laughs> what happens. Well, it's definitely the good news mm-hmm. that it's, it's perfectly okay to take a break and follow the little yeah. voice um, in, in your head sometimes. Yeah. One of the things that... I mean, looms large, I think, in any discussion of reading, attention today is, is of course, digitization. Mm. Um, this this feeling that we've somehow lost the ability to read properly, mm. that there was a golden age of reading yeah. and it was before the iPhone. How does your approach to reading with the embodied angle, the aesthetics, um, this question of taking a break and... and um, yeah, pursuing imaginative um, paths. What can you say about digitization or what new perspective yeah. might this offer on yeah. this problem? I would be reluctant to have an opinion on whether I think it's good or bad or uh, or stuff like that. But I mean, obviously, there are things that the analog book can do. I mean, there is a different kind of tactility and sensibility to uh, that kind of material than than digital uh, devices. We can also see uh, other uh, people have, um, other of my colleagues have researched in uh, how you can create better uh, economic spheres because you bring your book economic in different... spheres? Yeah, so they will bring their books uh, in places uh, in the bed and stuff like mm. that. Whereas you are more inclined to sit at the table uh, with your computer, uh, where it's located or where you used to work. So they would create better um, sp- spatial settings for the reading. And one of the things that we believe is that it takes time to get into a reading flow and you have to slow down. And it's not just like you can read immediately and get into it. So creating these spaces seems to be crucial and the book seems to be good mm. at that. So the material, of course, that matters. I mean, and there are many, 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 I mean, that's been studied heavily. Uh, and But the results are very diverse, I think, mm. depending on whether you are an optimist or a pessimist in terms of digitalization. But um, there seems to be trouble with spatial and temporal remembering the sequence of events um, when you read uh, on a device, digital device, Mm. because you don't have the feeling of length, for instance. All the persons that we talk to prefer the book 
over the screen, but they very often use the screen uh, or the digital device because it's cheaper. And, you know, that's some of the good things, uh, of course, that it's a democratic good thing that you can access uh, all kinds of literature uh, more cheaper digitally than, you know, buying the books. Or going um, to the library. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there seemed to be a different kind of experience with reading a yeah. book that many people still prefer, also the young generation. So I don't think that uh, there are definitely some, some big differences there. And I think also that people seem to have actually some sort of relationships with their physical books mm. too. Uh, even though they give it back uh, in school, it's like that was my book and, and stuff like that. So people would have a different kind of relationship. What that means for, you know, this, the skill that we think are important, like memory and, and stuff like that, I don't know. But it seems to have some sort of impact at least that is important for, for the readers. Yeah, I guess this question of... Um Identity and personality probably comes into yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. But even though who are the, the high tech people seem still to prefer reading a book when you ask them, uh, at least in our studies. So when they didn't, uh, it was a matter of convenience. I mean, mm. so these should be the people who actually have the skills exactly. to navigate seamlessly yeah. on on yeah. the screen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had expected that they were more optimistic and mm. and provided all the the. The possibilities that were, you know, related to the digital reading devices, but but they still preferred the the real book. More space for the imagination. Yeah, perhaps. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, as as we're concluding the podcast, I wanted to invite you to give us a reading recommendation, mm -hmm. either digital or non-digital, to be enjoyed um, yeah. on any kind of format. Yeah. Um, I think um, it was a tough question, I think, because you really want to uh, to give an advice to the people should read something brand new that no one knows about. But I think that uh, that's not what I, <laughs> I will do. I think I will recommend Lambros Maleforis's book, How Things Shape the Mind. Uh, he is an archaeologist and uh He ha he mixes uh, anthropology and then theories of distributed cognition and embodied cognition and talks exactly about how we think with things and how that's crucial. And I think it's been an eye-opener for me, at least, in terms of opening up how people are making sense with the books and how they engage with the books. And it's not just about retrieving information in, in that traditional sense. So that would be, I mean, everyone would enjoy reading that book because <laughs> that's... <laughs> Uh, that that was at least um, very radical and turned upside down the whole idea about how things yeah shape our minds and thinking yeah thank you thank you for the excellent conversation and for the reading recommendation um, thank you it was a pleasure to have you and thanks to everyone listening to the LC podcast. Thank you.